We live in a world that doesn't always understand grief, but we do. We see you, we hear you, and we're here to talk about grief in the most real of ways, because we have lived with it too. In this podcast, we'll look at ways to integrate grief into a life that is fulfilling and meaningful for you. There'll be no platitudes or silver linings, but there may be the occasional F-bomb. I'm coach John Polo, and my person died. I'm coach Carolyn Gower, and my person died too. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 30 of the My Person Died To podcast. Today's episode is entitled, Widowed by Suicide, Meet Hope Wood. So just to give our listeners a little bit of background before we start the interview, Hope and I have actually been friends for a couple years now, and Carolyn and Hope are meeting for the first time right now. Hi Hope, it's so nice to have you with us. Thanks for being here and sharing your story with us today. So first up, we just want to ask you to tell us a little bit about how you met your late husband, Philip, and what your life was like before his death. Um, we actually met online. Um, back at that time, eHarmony had just started. And I thought, oh, this is cool because it's a psychologist, so why not? So we met online, and he was living about eight hours away, and we actually were talking constantly for, this is going to sound crazy, but only two weeks, and he planned a visit to come see me. He actually came a week early. We had planned it for you know, in advance. And then all of a sudden he calls me on a Friday and he says, what are you doing this weekend? And I'm like, um, hanging out at school, studying. I was in grad school. And anyway, he surprised me with a visit and we went hiking that morning and we went to Baskin Robbins and we were talking about what are we waiting for? Like, we know what we want. Um, he was 33, I was 32. And so I said in Baskin Robbins, well, so, I mean, why don't we just go get married? Like we're in Gatlinburg, the um, capital of the world for, you know, just going and getting married really quickly, <laughs> all these wedding chapels everywhere. Um, so anyway, that started the whole conversation. And at the time I was really religious and he was too. And so we decided we would spend some time apart for a few hours and pray all that stuff. <laughs> and then we came back together and, um, he officially proposed and we started hunting for, you know, the marriage license place. It had to be open and we had to find a chapel and, we went and found my mom in the grocery store and it was Philip, myself and my mom at this wedding chapel in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and we got married. Wow. What? I've got to ask, <laughs> what, what did your mom say at that stage? The first thing my mom blurted out was, we have to find you something old, something broken, something blue. I don't know that whole thing. Um, but I had to beat my mom to the door to meet Philip in person the first time because I was staying 
back and forth between her house and um, a friend of mine's house where I was living, but I was kind of going back and forth. And when Philip was coming in town, I was staying at my mom's house and I literally had to say, no, 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 no. I get to meet him first. Go sit back down on the couch. <laughs> I will answer the front door. So she was really excited for me, I think, because she thought he was really cute and she was ready to have grandbabies. Um, I love that. A lot of people thought we were crazy. So unfortunately, there was some negative pushback because Philip and I eloped just kind of on the down low. And then six weeks later, we had a formal wedding reception at like a hotel, big hotel and um, invited, you know, everyone. And I found an antique wedding dress and, but we had trouble with like some family, some extended family, some friends giving us some pushback for what are you doing? You just met this guy, you know, and, and it was true. It happened incredibly fast and at the time we termed it a god thing now I would not term it as such but I mean we were married for 12 years and eight months so hope before Philip passes what is your life with him like so we know how you guys met we know about the marriage now the actual like wedding day the 12 years, and I think you just said eight months that you had with uh -huh. him. What was that like before yeah. his passing? Um, well, we got pregnant really quickly, um, like almost immediately, which I didn't expect. But um, so quickly launched into, you know, pregnancy and motherhood. And um, and then we lost a baby. Our, our second child was stillborn. And then our third child was born healthy with medical intervention and blood thinning shots and such. And then our fourth child was an early miscarriage. So we entered into a stretch of time where it was really all about babies and parenting. And Philip was a high school French teacher. I was a stay at home mom. Um, that was kind of our life for the first decade. Um, and then he decided, we decided it was time for a change. Um, so he found a new job. And the last couple of years, um, we lived in Florida. We moved away from Tennessee. And he was working as a French instructor on an Air Force base. He was previously military. Obviously, no relationship is perfect, right? And, and even if, mm -hmm. you know, you're in love and, and things are wonderful. Like life can be so difficult in so many different ways. Would you say that you felt happy being married to Philip? Yes. Yes. I was extremely happy and told him that he was more than I could have dreamed for and not putting myself down, but I really strongly felt like I married up you know, like, why is this really good looking, intelligent man who has experienced all these different cultures and um, speaks all these different languages? Why is he interested in me? But so, yeah, we were very, very happy. We had lots of little kind of inside sayings about how happy we were together and best friends. Um, 
I think the tide started to shift a little when we had the baby that was stillborn. That's when things started to get a little more, um, you know, we, we were um, dealing with grief and then we had some financial issues around the same time. So, but all in all, we were very, very happy. I think we had a really amazing, beautiful life together. Hey, we realize that this is likely to be a difficult conversation. So please take as much time as you need. Can you tell us as little or, or as much as you're comfortable with a bit about Philip's death? Yeah, so um, he had recently been promoted from language instructor to the director over the entire LTD where we were at in Florida. So it was a big promotion, lots of stress that went along with that promotion. And this was, I believe, in April, May of 2017. And so I knew that he was adjusting he had been left with kind of a mess to kind of clean up, but he had told me that this was, you know, like his career was going as it was the best it had ever been. So things were moving in a good direction. We had future plans to go overseas and live in Germany. He had put in for a transfer and we were kind of several years really struggling with our faith and spirituality. And he had just started going back to church to try to reconnect to something larger than himself. And so I knew that was going on. But basically, um, early one Sunday morning, I woke up and he was gone. Um, he had gone to bed early the night before, he said, with a stomach ache. I had seen him twice overnight I woke up he wasn't in bed I saw him in the living room at one point about 1 30 he said oh I just couldn't sleep I didn't want to keep you awake I was like okay cool so he was sitting on the couch and I just went back to bed and then about 4 30 in the morning I went out again to the living room because he was not in the bed and he jumped up from the couch and immediately like rushed over to me and he started rubbing his hands up and down on my upper outer arms. And I was like, and he kissed me. And then he kissed me again. I was like, what are you doing? Why aren't you in bed? It's 4.30 in the morning. And he said, I'm just trying to reassure you. And that's the last thing I remember. I went back to sleep, woke up at 7.29 and he was not there. And he was not responding to texts and calls were going straight to voicemail. The front door was unlocked. Um, his car was gone. So I know that it's not a linear process then from that yeah. to you finding out that your husband has died and taken his life. So, you know, take as much time as you need, but tell us a little bit about, you know, how you found that out, when you found that out, et cetera. Okay. Um, he ended up being missing for two and a half weeks, 18 days. We had no, there was no contact. He was not responding to anything. We tried multiple ways to get in touch with him. 
the day he went missing, um, the cops got involved pretty early on that morning, about 1130. Um, they finally were taking me seriously because I knew something was wrong. So I slept three hours and 20 minutes the first five days. We farmed the kids out to homeschool families. And there were some people that were helping look, look that were looking for him. Um, again, the police were involved. Uh, they put, you know, a bolo out for the car. We found out looking on the computer that he had searched for gun ranges. And so I had a homeschool mom that came to be with me. She was the first person that, that got there to my house. And then my older sister was the next person, but that homeschool mom just, I mean, I still to this day, I don't know how she did it. She barely knew me. We had met like six weeks prior, but she was doing some investigative kind of work, you know, just looking around, digging around and found out about the gun range. And I believe she and my older sister went to the gun range and found out information that they weren't supposed to be able to get, but they were given information that a week prior to his leaving, he had gone to the gun range, picked out a gun, bought it, went back that Friday before he left. He left on a Sunday morning, went back on Friday to the gun range, took a shooting class and picked up the gun because they had to have time to do a background check. Um, so at that point we knew, okay, he has a gun. Um, unfortunately there were no sightings. We, we got no information, nothing the whole 18 days. And then on a Wednesday night, about six o'clock, um, the kids were back home. I believe they were both playing Minecraft just to try to, at this point, I was telling them, I think daddy's having a midlife crisis. I don't know what's going on, but we're going to do our best to work this out. And, uh, but police showed up at the door and said, you know, I'm sorry, but first they asked me, you know, they identified who I was and all of that. And they said, your husband, Philip Wood was found deceased by a gunshot wound in Nevada. So we found out after the fact that the kids and I went out there and we went through his car and we saw where he died and we painted a rock. But when we went through his car, we found some receipts that showed that he basically drove 2,800 miles in under 48 hours. So we don't know why. I don't know that I've ever asked you this question in all the years I've known you. I probably have, but it was probably when we first met. When he was gone for that entire time, did you ever think suicide? And, and if so, was that like, like the predominant thought in your head? Or did you just think, I mean, what did you think? No, I did not. In fact, the cop was talking to me that morning and he's basically like well ma'am we can't we can't do a missing persons report unless you feel he's a danger to himself or other people and I was like well I don't think he is I just don't know where he is um and the cop basically said 
if you tell me you think he was depressed, then I can officially make this a missing curse, missing persons case and we can get the ball rolling. I didn't like the way that played out because then I got misquoted in the newspaper article that came out for the local paper. Nonetheless, it got the missing persons stuff going, but no, I mean, all I thought was he stressed about work. Um, but other than that, I was the one texting him on the Friday before he left. Um, yeah, I'm really having a difficult day, feeling down, feeling trapped in motherhood, drowning. I don't know how I'm going to keep doing this. Um, and so it's like our last text, he was trying to say encouraging things to me. So no, no mental health diagnosis. I knew that he dealt with depression in the past. Um, he had previously been married. Um, and I know when that ended in divorce, he dealt with some depression, but no suicide attempts that I was aware of, no official like major mental health issues. So it came out of left field. And even when we found the, the gun range situation, it took a police officer friend from another state who got on the phone with me and said, okay, Hope, you need to understand that this could possibly be a suicide situation. And I was just like, that was not even on my radar. I was like, there is no way, there's no way that that's not what this is. I mean, maybe he was unhappy in the marriage and maybe he just left us and he, he wants out of the marriage, but we'll figure this out. You know, we'll still co-parent and we'll, we'll figure this out. He would never, ever do that to me or definitely not the kids. So it was not on my radar at all. Did Philip leave a note at all to explain why he did what he did no he did not leave a note and in the receipts that we found in his car we found one where he did buy some ink pens and two notebooks but nothing was found the notebooks were not found in the car at the scene I don't know if he tried to write something but Nothing was found. Do you wish he had written a note? I mean, obviously, I'm asking you to play a little bit of like a mm -hmm. guessing game because, you know, what effect would that have had on you? You don't know because it didn't happen. But all things being equal, do you wish that you had some kind of letter? I actually do. I have heard people say that, oh, it, the letter doesn't help or whatever. But I think for me, I at least would have known for sure what his mindset was so i think a letter would have helped and i certainly would have liked for him to have written something to the kids just something yes letters would have helped that's how i feel and how long ago was this hope hard to believe it's been five years we just passed the five-year anniversary in august yeah. So. so can I ask you what the initial pain was like? Obviously, you know, 
All three of us on here are coaches. Hope you're a therapist as well. We've all seen this type of stuff with our clients. But on a personal level, Carolyn and I lost our spouses to cancer. So we'll talk in a moment about some of the differences between that type of loss and loss to suicide. But for you, what was your initial pain like? Well, I mean, I'll just say as a caveat, I don't know what it's like to lose my person to terminal illness either. So, um, I mean, it was horrible. It was brutal. It was catastrophic. It was putting it mildly. I mean, I honestly did not think this was survivable. And I felt that way constantly for the, the first six months. Can I ask you about anger? So obviously, you know, regardless of what type of loss we have, there's a bazillion different emotions and thoughts and feelings that come with all the losses, right? Did you feel anger towards Philip? Do you still have anger towards Philip? Tell me about that. Definitely have had a lot of rage and anger, feeling abandoned. And as time has gone on, feeling betrayed and the trust questioned between he and I and what we had built together. So yeah, there's a lot of anger. Still, there's a lot of anger. Um, Hope, um, I've shared on this podcast before that I have been suicidal myself many years ago, about 27 years ago. And I can remember from that time that it's, it's all about the person that's suffering. Um, it's like you feel like you can't find another way out. You can't find that way forward and you just want to do anything to get out of the pain. And it's not that you don't love the people closest to you um, or you want to leave them or that they did anything wrong. It's just that you really feel that they might be better off without you. Yet what I often see with clients is that the people left behind can carry so much guilt and just feel like it it, it affects your self-worth thinking, well, they didn't even want to stay around me. They wanted to get away from me and that sort of thing. Have you experienced any of those types of feelings since Philip died? Yes, absolutely. And you know, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying about your experience and I don't want anything I say to diminish, of course, your experience. And I mean, I felt so many things, um, but I think your question kind of circled back around to like the, the guilt, um, wondering why I didn't see, you know, that's that he was doing this bad. Like I had, I knew he was struggling just a week prior. Um, we were going to go out to dinner we were trying to go out to dinner uh, one time each weekend if we could. And we were sitting at this Mediterranean uh, restaurant in Pensacola on the outdoor patio talking and it was Saturday night. And I said, are you going to church in the morning? And he, he said, no, you know, I'm never going back. I'll, I'll never be able to believe any of that stuff again. And um, so I, you know, after this all played out, I, I felt a lot of, I don't know if guilt's the right word, but just kind of 
um, shock in the sense of how could this person unravel to this degree in my presence and this happened like and I had no idea it was coming now he was he was an Arabic translator he did some work he had a top security clearance he did some he did some work like he knew how to go off the grid he knew how to it just doesn't surprise me now looking back that he was able to compartmentalize to that degree so somehow who he presented to me must have been the parts he was comfortable presenting to me but he hid a lot from me I think I think he hid a lot of what he was struggling with and dealing with and I was just kind of apparently a little clueless but I've really struggled with I can't believe he was suffering to that degree and I didn't see it. And and then there's the piece of if he just could have asked or reached out or tried, but even that falls a little hollow because a lot of people do get help, do ask and still die by suicide. So I understand that this is not, there's no easy answer to suicide prevention. There's just no easy answer at all, but I think I went off what your original question was. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. You're... So um, you're right. Like there is no easy answer regarding suicide. And some people are very, very good at hiding their emotions. As we know, mm -hmm. they present a very different face to those they love than what's really going on inside them. So with this next question, please know that I'm not implying you you should be here or that you shouldn't be here strictly 100 million percent a question you know we know that all these again grief is not a linear process if i say the word forgiveness to you what do you think about that word how do you feel about that word where are you with that word i mean i have a lot of compassion for and i'm a very forgiving person but if the question is, will this ever be okay? No, it will never be okay. If the question is, have I forgiven him? I still feel like I'm in a room waiting to have a conversation with him. And so I think in my heart, you know, I, I hold a lot of compassion and I really hate that he was in the place he was in. And so I do have a softness in that regard. Maybe that's a form of forgiveness. There's a couple of thoughts I want to share. So first off, one of the things knowing you for as long as I've known you is that like, you don't have answers, right? Like you, you, there was no letter. It wasn't, you know, kind of a clear thing as to what happened or why it happened. So you, you still don't have answers. And we talked about this in private. The suicide is its own unique form of loss. And if I had lost Michelle to suicide versus cancer, you know, to me, I feel Michelle's absence during certain moments, and again, she passed to cancer. So let's say I'm having a moment with my kid, 
right? Right? And there can be anger in that moment. You know, I can be yelling at Michelle, like, why did you leave me and myself to do this fucking shit? Right? Like, and, and she passed up cancer. So I would imagine that even if, you know, you're working towards forgiveness or, you know, want to get to a place of forgiveness, you have a moment like with, with your beautiful children where it's maybe not so beautiful. And that anger probably, I'm assuming, tell me if I'm wrong, comes back. Yes? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it will ever fully go away because this is a life that we signed up to have together and these children need their dad and I need my partner and I do not like doing this on my own. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't like what he did to the kids. And in fact, I think that their loss is worse than mine, but I understand that this is not like a rating system here and we're not trying to, you know, compare and everything, but I do think that what they lost is more significant on a soul level, I think. And um, I'm angry for them and I see how much they have changed I think something broke inside the kids I think that the kids are healing but it has been a very difficult road and they don't want to talk about their dad it's just not been the kind of grief where we leave an empty seat at Thanksgiving for him or there's no like place for remembering him in kind of a way that feels really very good when he comes to mind and a memory comes to mind I will share it hey your dad used to say this or hey your dad thought that was really funny or hey that really sounds like your dad or I'll bring it up, but I don't know. I'm sure even within suicide loss, you could interview a hundred suicide widows and you're going to have a hundred different stories and a hundred different experiences. So my experience is just, it's been very, very complicated and the shock of it, the no answers, the length of time. How old are your kids now, Hope? They were eight and 11. And now they are 13 and 17. Do you think within them they may have a fear that that could be something that affects them later on in life, that, you know, there might be some type of mental health thing that might come up for them given what happened with their dad? Well, they both do deal with significant mental health issues they're both in therapy um my oldest is an autistic trans non-binary person with adhd and my youngest has adhd and severe social anxiety and ptsd but i i don't think either one of them 
that's a hard question for me to answer. I mean, I, yeah, I think my oldest child I know has, has dealt with some dark things. Um, but honestly, they just don't want to talk about this. So we don't get a lot of conversations. It's, it's not like the kids are saying to me, I'm worried I might kill myself later. Um, now mm-hmm. I've had the thought of, will the kids see this as like a viable option Yeah, because their dad did it and it research does talk about it can run in, yes. you know, families or whatever. Um, of course that is one of my deepest fears I don't think I, I literally would not survive if something happened to one of my children at this point. Maybe if I would survive, it would only be for the other living child, I guess, but I can't even go there. No. Um, so we don't really have conversations like that. They don't yeah. really, you know, they're just both dealing with so much. And yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah. Hope, I want to go back to some of the conversation as far as, you know, you could interview a hundred widowed people who lost their person to suicide and everyone would have a different story, right? So we know that everyone's grief is unique. That being said, we, again, we've had this conversation in private before, like all I can do is like for a split second, try to put myself in your shoes, right? Try. And everything you say about, you know, we don't really like have that space where, you know, we talk about Philip and, and, you know, that, that space that, you know, you'll see so much talked about on social media, you know, you don't really have that at this moment with your kids. Again, I think of course, every loss is different and every grief is different, but that makes complete sense to me. And I don't know if I would have that either had Michelle passed to suicide by suicide, which kind of leads me to the next thing I want to talk about, which is if we're being honest, so no, no need to, no need to sugar it up here. Is that an expression? There is a difference (laughs) between somebody who passes of cancer or heart attack or, you know, whatever it is, right. An accident versus somebody who passes from suicide or maybe even some kind of addiction, et cetera. So can you share with us some of your thoughts or personal experiences as far as the stigmas that unfortunately come in our society? Well, I mean, I think from a clinical perspective, there is research that backs up kind of the levels of impairment seem to be higher with like a sudden loss or, you know, in cases of murder or suicide or then complicated, complex situations, even within those situations. So I do think that there is a higher risk of prolonged grief disorder, complicated grief. Um, But it really depends on so many factors, the relationship you had with the person that died, how they died, you know, there's so many things, your own coping as you enter into this uh, terrible, you know, reality, like where you're at, the support you have at the time. So there's just so many factors, but 
Um, as far as stigmas go, I mean, people are really judgy um, often. And I mean, I have my own internalized stigmas that have risen to the surface. And at first we were, I was ashamed, embarrassed. And so at first on social media, it was, he has died and it was from what appears to be a heart condition, like a heart attack or something. We're not sure. I just wasn't ready because of the stigmas, because what people will think of him, what people might think of, you know, us. And then also it just feels like it's a disenfranchised kind of a grief. It's just ultra messy in the sense of this is not a story we're going to typically put up on a screen and flash pictures and this, this just <laughs> it's not it's just extremely messy and so there is no way I don't think we ever can really tie a bow on anything or anyone who dies but there is certainly no way to pretty this up at all it's just really messy and you know people seem to really I've experienced other kinds of losses in my life that were also kind of left of center, so to speak, like losing a child, you know, having a baby that's born, stillborn. Um, people don't know what to do with that. It It's not as socially comfortable if any of them are comfortable, but I think you both know what I'm saying. It's like, we didn't necessarily get a ton of support in regards to um, it's just harder, I think, for people to support in cases also where it's complicated and messy. I think for people who want to be there for you and they, they don't know what to say even more so and they don't know how to support you even more so. So it's, it's just more awkward. It's so I think the three of us. Um know agree that we do live in a grief illiterate society and um yeah as you said suicide is very complicated do you did you ever experience personally where you felt that your grief and your pain was minimized or dismissed because of the way that philip did die definitely it felt minimized and dismissed at times um but sometimes I think it was because the other person just didn't have any concept at all of what I was dealing with. So like, I know there was one time where someone compared it to losing their spouse to divorce. And that of course felt <laughs> very minimizing, but, but the thing is I never want to show up in any space around grief as though my grief is worse than everybody else's. But, you know, there's that saying where it feels to us like our grief is the worst in the sense of my world exploded. Um, but, you know, everybody who has dealt with losing someone they love, I mean, it's their own kind of hell. 
Um, so with that said, I, I do struggle with even being really honest with how terrible it has been because I fear people will one think I'm exaggerating or attention seeking or they just won't believe me it, it is really difficult to really show up and talk about something like this and to really kind of feel like it's really okay for me to show up and and say this is what it's actually like for me whether or not you believe it or not this is my truth and so I think when I think about stigmas and being dismissed or I think I've done some of that to myself and yes, I've had people do it to me and there's just, it, it happens in so many ways. It happens when I had friends that just stopped talking to me. I never, they never talked to me again. And I don't think that was their intended message though, but it, what it translates to me is it just either they don't take this serious enough or they think I'm I don't know what they think but you know the silence from other people but I think when it when you boil it down it's that makes people really uncomfortable they don't know how to like hold space they almost act like they're gonna catch it like this happened to you so that means it could happen to me or just I like the phrase, you know, the too muchness of it all. It is a lot. It is a lot to hold as a person. And it's, I'm sure, a lot for a friend or even a potential new partner to hold. I recognize that it's really difficult to support people through something like this. But I would really like to just say to anyone listening that it's better to try it's better to say words than to say nothing or to run away. It's always better to try and to ask questions and to just show up because I think that's one of the most difficult parts of this for me is yes, I have family that really loves me, but outside of my, you know, like my sisters, really outside of them, I, I have had to pay to get support. I mean, that's just the truth. Because I really just have not had it. And that is very difficult. And I think it complicates the grief more. The The loneliness and the kids don't have, we just don't have very many people in our lives. And it's not for a lack of desire for that or a lack of trying. I struggle within that. And this is going back to something you said earlier, because I've had a lot of big things in my life happen. And it just sometimes is easy for me to slip into that mindset of I'm just too much. There's just too many hard things, too many hard things. Um, but I think that's, those are lies that, you know, the silence kind of, whispers to us um but loneliness is it's terrible 
we've talked about it a million times, right? Society is incredibly grief illiterate, incredibly grief illiterate. And yeah, it's even more grief illiterate, which is hard to imagine, but it is even more grief illiterate when they're, when the story's not pretty is not the right word, but you know what I'm saying? When you can't like romanticize yeah. it, right? I know, when yeah. again, when there was, you know, lost by addiction or suicide or maybe there was abuse in the marriage right or something like that society you know they have no idea what to do when anyone is grieving but fuck you add some complication into it and, and it's beyond measure how illiterate our society is to that type of loss and also again it increases the likelihood and the likelihood is almost 100% that there are going to be at least, a, you know, a decent amount of people that invalidate, excuse my language, the fuck out of your loss, right? And we see that all the time, right? We see people invalidate other people's losses all the time. But I do think when it's lost by suicide, there, there's, there's that extra layer of having your your grief invalidated and we talked about this before as well like one of the things other than like the actual human loneliness right of not having our person here anymore who was also our best friend and our spouse and you know our co-parent not having them here anymore and then losing so many other people in our lives with all the fucking secondary loss but one of the other things that causes the loneliness is the fact that even when you share your story, no one is going to actually understand your individual type of human pain, the horror that you went through. Would you agree with that? Like, it's frustrating sometimes. I mean, we get why, but like, even when you share your story and you know nobody can understand the depths of it. Yes, that is very frustrating and sometimes keeps me from you know writing or trying to express myself um but typically what will happen is i just so much emotion builds up that i have to say something because that's how i really process is to write something or talk it out so but yeah that that feeling of ultimately no one fully gets it um and and there's also that piece of the person that I thought got me the most period is no longer here <laughs> but going back to feeling like no one really gets it it's true it's very frustrating because no one actually really will ever fully understand and that is really, really frustrating. Like I've jokingly said at times, I wish, you know, like the Vulcan mind meld was a real thing <laughs> because then, then you could know what this is really like. Um, but all I know to do is try my best to explain it. put myself out there, write whatever I can write. And I hope that I'll be believed, but I don't control that. People are going to think what they think. People are always going to judge. 
I'm just learning more and more that I have to, for my own sanity and my own healing, show up for myself, show up for my kids, show up in the world and just be honest. And it, I ultimately do not have control over what other people think about how I show up in the world. I think it's a good um, time to mention something that the three of us know quite well is that death by suicide, death by addiction, all that sort of thing is really pretty much the same as death from a, a terminal illness or an illness because addiction, mental health, you know, they they are illnesses in themselves. Do you have anything to say around that, Hope? That's a tough one for me because if that works for someone, if that helps bring them peace, but for me, I feel like it's a lot more nuanced in regards to Philip than his brain was sick. Um, also, I don't know that I believe that everyone that dies by suicide is necessarily mentally ill. They might be mentally compromised on some level, but I just take issue with some of the suicide prevention stuff because, I mean, in my husband's case, I'm not, I just don't, I think there are cases of suicide where it's clearly mental illness then there are cases where it's clearly a you know impulsivity but i just cannot wrap it up with that nice neat bow of well they're always their brains are sick and that i know that's not what you said i'm saying that in my struggle to construct a narrative that i can live with and also figure out like well, what do I say to my kids about their dad? Because, you know, we have had conversations, albeit a few, but we will have more. And I have used that language in the past of his, his brain was sick. He was dealing with stuff we didn't know he was dealing with. But I think there's more to the story than that. And that doesn't, doesn't fully do it for me. Do you know what I mean? It just doesn't. Yeah. It's not the full story and especially not having a note. I don't know what his mental space was like. And um, so I don't know. That's a hard one for me. I don't, I think it's true for some people that their brains were sick. It was clearly mental illness, but I don't think that's true necessarily for everyone that dies by addiction or suicide or so in that sense, I don't necessarily see them all the same, but I mean, I know what you're saying and I'm not trying to shoot it down. I'm just saying, what am I saying, John? Help me out here. <laughs> yeah, look, I get yeah. it. It's a lot more complicated than just that. As you well, said, we we can't wrap anything up in a bow in yeah. this situation and make it all pretty. It is so much more complicated than that. And look, Hope, that's one of the things about your story, right? You still have 
unanswered questions. So again, no two people's story, you know, are going to be the same, just like our pain is not going to be the same. We could talk to, you know, a hundred people who lost someone to suicide and they're all going to have a hundred different stories. There, there is no bow in your story right now, Hope. And part of, there will never be a bow, but also you still don't have a lot of answers, right? I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is you mentioned six months a couple times early on in this podcast. So tell me in the last five years, it's a little over five years, how you feel your grief has changed and evolved, if at all. It kind of feels like the grief is what it is. And it's more that I am shifting and my relationship with the grief is what is changing. Not, not the loss, not the, not the horribleness of it. Not, not the grief for, for me, the grief is the pain and the loss. And so that doesn't change. Like it's just this huge thing. And it's sometimes I wrote something one time about grief being like an old woman. Sometimes it feels like grief is this huge monster. Sometimes it feels like it's this wall that doesn't have an ending either direction. It's just a solid wall and I can't get through it. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways I visualize the grief, but what has shifted is really how I interact with it. Um, that I'm not all the time metaphorically, emotionally curled up into the fetal position all the time. Um, I'm not just surviving anymore. Um, we were able to use social security survivor annuity payments that were coming in for myself and the kids to live off of solid the first two years. I mean, it was not a high amount, but it was enough to just live without much extra at all. And we did, and I took off two full years and didn't get back into the, you know, working outside the home until after two years had gone by almost exactly. So August of 2019. And I think that started me down a path and helped it shift more. Um, it's kind of like, you know, it does kind of grow and shrink and grow and large and shrink and large and shrink. Like the grief is always there. It's sometimes it's really, really big. And I just can't, I keep bumping into it. Sometimes it feels a little, a little distant, um, but it's always there. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's still horrible. It's still terrible. Some days I walk around and I think people just have no idea. They really have no idea what it takes even now, five years later, to bring myself to this actual moment they just don't understand how much is involved in showing up in the world with this terrible awful reality and that pisses me off not that they don't get it it pisses me off that this is 
something I have to continue to learn to contend with. Like I, it, it's not going to go away. That's really difficult for me. 100%. I hear you. Do you feel hopeful in any way about the future? Do you have things you want to accomplish? Do you want to try to open your heart up to love again? Just tell our listeners a little bit about where you're at right now and kind of like what you envision for yourself moving forward or what you hope for yourself moving forward. Yeah. So I did do the casual dating thing about six months out. I started dating. That was basically just to feel better and numb the pain. And so for the last three years, I have not dated. I feel hopeful about work and the people I get to help and encourage and support. Um, I do look forward to that developing. I've mostly been really focused on, you know, building my business, but then also just taking care of the kids and I'm hopeful. And that's what brings me joy in my life. I mean, as horrible and difficult as it's always been, I have to just say and make sure that I say this in any any interview that I do, it's never, ever been 100% Black. It just never actually has been. And I don't even know why. Like, logically, I think, well, shouldn't it have been? <laughs> But I've always been able to have some sort of connection to, I mean, I guess it's hope or, I mean, the kids are why, why I hung in there, why I stayed around. And now I feel like I'm doing something for myself that's also for the kids, but growing my business. And um, I do hope to, you know, have another partner. But that's a difficult conversation. So I hope you just mentioned a little bit about your career and you're a therapist in South Carolina and you also offer coaching globally. Do you find it hard to do the work that you do after everything that you've been through? Sometimes I do, yes. <laughs> but I'm learning to set really clear boundaries and... um. For example, sometimes, you know, I struggle with, I don't have, I'm not seeing clients who have like lost a spouse to suicide, but I'm just not ready to do that. And I may never be ready to do that. So I'm like learning to give myself permission to show up in the world how I can. And I really love what I do. I love being able to work with people. Um, sometimes I'm surprised that I'm able to do this work um, given everything but somehow believe it or not even with all of the horribleness of it all I am able to show up in a space and and I think really help people <laughs> I hope so and I, I want to I want to it's it's a really delicate balance to stay in touch with human pain and yet at the same time be able to 
have that boundary in place so that you can hold space for the person that you're talking to. And so it's not about me when I'm in a therapy session or on a coaching call, but I'm there for the person. I'm not there for, for me. This is not about my pain. It's about their pain. And there are some times where my pain kind of gets poked at and I just have to stay really aware of when that happens and I'll get some consultation or supervision and just take care of myself. And, but yeah, I'm really excited about work and seems to kind of be coming together. Um, I feel like my kind of identity as a therapist and a coach is still forming and I do struggle a lot with, you know, imposter syndrome and, and all of that. But ultimately at the end of the day, I, I love what I do. I love that I get to be now, I was in community mental health, but now I'm in private practice and I love it. It's close to home and I would love to help more people so I can stay doing this. <laughs> <laughs> wish I could do it for free all the time, but I can't, um, you know how that goes. Yes, we know that <laughs> we all we want to help as many people as we can, don't we? Mm-hmm. So on that note, would we will have this in the show notes as well, but would you like to share with our listeners how they can find you um, on your website and on social media? Yes. So the easiest way probably is hopewood.net. That's kind of the landing page for the coaching services, but it links you also to counseling therapy services as well. So hopewood.net. And then also I write. And so I have um, hopewoodwriter.com where I've written a lot about grief and a lot about my faith shifting and deconstruction around Christianity and such. So I recently put that blog under my name. It was under a pseudonym and that was literally just a month ago. So that's been a really big development in me showing up in the world and saying, yes, this is me. And this is what I have to say about this (laughs) and not like hiding anymore. So I'm trying really hard to show up and not be embarrassed and fearful, but to just show up. So, And speaking about your writing, Hope, I want to read something that you wrote and sent to me. So this is just a paragraph from a larger piece that you wrote, but it really, really spoke to me. And I've actually shared it with a couple clients since. So it says, Maybe it's time to stop trying so hard to know and understand and to let the judges do what they do and just don't listen anymore to them or the social stigmas, but to listen more to my own inner knowing and to tune in to anything that is offered in kindness while the rest fades into oblivion. I really love that. That's so heartfelt. So Carolyn and I each have one more question to wrap up the episode. 
I won't go on too long of a John Polo typical tangent, but I just want to say something briefly. (laughs) When you start to walk into the world and you feel yourself reverting back to maybe a sense of shame, you know, not liking the way you show up again, we really have to remove ourselves from the situation. Like what is it exactly that is caught you know, why like why do you feel shame because the truth is even though you don't feel this way those of us who understand pain those of us who understand profound loss will look at someone else who's been through hell and will view them as a fucking superhero like you don't feel like it but you're basically batwoman right like here you are having the worst <laughs> thing ever happen and time after time after time you somehow some way get back up even when the absolute last thing you want to do is get back up and you raise your children and you know you're starting a business and you're trying to help other people and you're still maybe a you know above the importance of starting the business and helping other people even more important that you're still a kind, caring, loving, compassionate human. And as we all know, after what we've been through, we very easily could have went the other way. So I want you as you move forward to hold your head up high. That being said, here's going to be my last question. And then Carolyn has one. I'm going to put you on the spot, Hope. This is always a hard question. What one piece of advice would you give to someone who has experienced a loss, a loss, excuse me, that has them feeling absolutely shattered. One piece of advice. I put you on the spot. I told you. I mean, my first thought, and this doesn't really make a ton of sense, I guess, but my first thought was go where the light is. And what I mean by that is don't give up wherever you're being offered kindness, wherever there are spaces where you feel some sort of comfort, just go there, go to the people that are kind, go to the spaces that offer kindness. And also just know that it won't always feel as horrible constantly as it does in this moment. I like that. Good advice. So I hope quite often in suicide deaths, the circumstances surrounding their death will overshadow who the person really was. They, I guess, simply become the person who suicided. How would you like Philip, so the husband, the father, the friend, to be remembered? Yeah, I I just, it breaks my heart that he went out, so to speak, in such a dramatic way. I mean... He was so not a dramatic person. He was quiet. He would stay on the edges until something drew him in. And when he had something to say, he would really listen. And when he when he was really interested in something, he would have a lot to say about that. But he was not a dramatic person. And I, I really, really hate that these kinds of deaths, they really do not only oftentimes overshadow who the person was or where they can at times, it also has really overshadowed the relationship and marriage that we had. 
And unfortunately, the circumstances caused me to call into question what we shared. And so I feel a huge weight around keeping his memory alive. That is a really complicated topic. But I, I wish again, back to the Vulcan mind melt, <laughs> that my kids could really remember and know what an amazing father they had. You know, they were super close to him. He was wonderful. Um, I really think that he was an exceptional human being and a rare human being. Thank you for listening to the My Person Died To podcast. For full information on our books, coaching services and other offerings, visit our websites, carolyngowercoaching.com.au and johnpolocoaching.com. Remember to rate, review and subscribe. And if you found this podcast helpful, please spread the word so that we're able to support more people through grief. Thank you.